So we're continuing our series on 1 Timothy. So before we start, I just want to, one of the things that God has convicted me of since the new year is that God really does minister to his people. Right? I think, I think a lot of Christians are in this dangerous mindset, if you will, thinking that the that Holy Spirit doesn't minister to you. Right? The Holy Spirit kind of only, we think the Holy Spirit kind of ministers to you in an only limited space, such as a retreat or something. Or the Holy Spirit ministers to you primarily through Sunday worship, which all may be true. But the Holy Spirit, through God, through His Spirit, does daily minister to His people. And and the reason I'm telling you this, because I think that's the confession of my life. God continuously ministers to me, reveals truth to me, that changes my outlook, changes my behavior. And the thing that God has revealed to me and rebuked me since the beginning of the year was, I think I shared this with you before, he said, one of my main problems PJ, God calls me PJ, is that you have the way of putting boundaries between theology and reality. In your prayer life, PJ, you, you say all these lofty things about who I am, which is all true. I have these deep, oh, but you should hear my prayers. It's very deep. Right? I'm very proud, right? I have a very deep understanding about God. And yet, God says, your problem is that there's a boundary between what you think you know and how you act in reality. There should not be a boundary between what you know and how you act, PJ. And that's been my conviction from the beginning of the new year. Depending upon God for the real things in my life. Right? And so I'm working through this. And so the other day, right, the beginning of the week, as I was like driving, I had an idea. If God wants me to live in reality with Him, you know what I'm going to do? This week, I'm going to do things that will make Satan upset at me. I'm going to do things to make Satan upset at me. I don't know why I thought that way, but I said, yeah, let's live like that. Let's live and do things that will upset Satan, right? And that was my resolve. So I did it. I prayed like three times a day, right? I tried to read more, right? I tried to be more mindful of God. And it became amazing. I began to see God moving at everyday things in my life including this case that I thought was, a, there's no way this case would be approved. God miraculously made me see that he, he approved this case, which was amazing. But what is interesting is, I saw God working, but you know what happened? I also saw Satan attacking me in real life. It's crazy. 
as more as I try to do things that will make him mad, the more he pressed this thorn that I have in me. I have this thorn that I have in me. I can feel him pressing it to make me feel more depressed. The more I try to walk with God, the more I see him pressing my thorn. Not only that, I never have dreams. I had two satanic dreams this past week. I see God acting in my life in reality, but I also see Satan acting out in, in my life in reality, which came to me to a conclusion. Oh my gosh, guys, faith is an everyday reality. Satan is an everyday adversary. Holy Spirit is an everyday spirit that guides and blesses his people. You understand? When I realize this, the more I realize God is a God of reality, I realized how I live my everyday life matters. Christians, we live before the living God. That's what we believe. We, we, we live before the living God. And as people who live before the living God, we should act and live differently than people of the world. And this is so different from modern notions of Christianity where people think God doesn't expect anything from me. That is completely not the case. If we're living before the living God, how we live should be different. How we live should matter. Right? It's not okay to live like the world before the living God. Okay? Because when you read his word, he has, God has expectation of how his people should live. We're the ones who don't think he has any expectation. No, no, no. God has expectations of how he's, his people ought to live. He expects you to live a certain way. He expects me to live a certain way. Some will call what I just said legalism. It's not legalism. It's, it's what's revealed in the word of God. There is a way that we are called to live. Especially, there is a way that we are called to worship that's what we're going to talk about today. Every day, we're, every day we're, we're called to live it differently before him. But this is especially true on the Lord's day. As his people gather to worship, there is expectation that God wants for his people to act in a certain way, to believe in a certain way, when they come together to worship him. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're not here, it's going to sting a little bit. But the number one thing that God expects his people to do is to show up. 
with his other brothers and sisters to worship him. We got it in our heads that we're doing God a favor by showing up once in a while. And God doesn't feel any differently whether we show up or not. God still loves me anyway, we think. No. He loves you. But that still doesn't change his expectation of his people. And the number one expectation of of, of God for his people is come together, physically gather together as a body of Christ to worship him. In the New Testament, there is no such thing as an individual Christian flying solo somewhere. God has designed creation to be, salvation to be, to be worked out, to lived out amongst the body of believers. The cornerstone of which should be worshiping together. And if you're not coming together on a regular basis, if that's at the highest priority, you're not meeting God's expectation, God's commandment, God's call for you. Is that too hard? Did I start out too hard early? Eh, what are we going to do? And not only are we called to worship together, but even in the course of worship, even during worship, there are things that God expects his people to do as we worship him. It's It's not enough just to show up. There are things that God has called us to do while we're worshiping him together. And this is what Paul is addressing in these, in, in these verses. We, start, we began to study chapter 2 last week. Last week was about praying for the, for, the, for, the, for the unsaved. Paul is specifically giving instructions about prayer in chapter 2. His instruction in chapter 2 is about how people should pray as they gather together. So when he says pray for the lost, we should pray for the lost privately, but in chapter 2 specifically, he is saying when you guys gather together as a body of Christ, as we are doing today, you should be praying for the lost people out there. So chapter 2 is about how, how Christians should act as they come together to worship God. And the reason why Paul is Paul is writing chapter 2, let alone the whole letter of Timothy, was the Christian in Ephes- Christians in Ephesus were doing something wonky. They were doing something inappropriate. To correct their mistake, Paul is writing this letter. Then the question is, when Paul is addressing the question of public worship, addressing issues of public worship, what specifically were the Ephesians Christians doing wrong that would entail Paul to write this letter? This is what it was happening in the church of Ephesus. Number one, men weren't leading. Number two, women, some women, not all women, some women were becoming a force of distraction rather than edification to the church. Those are the two big issues that Paul is dealing with at the church of Ephesus. Issue number one, men weren't leading. 
Number two, some women were being a source of distraction rather than a source of edification. That, was, that, that is what was going on, especially during the time of worship. That's why Paul is addressing these two types of issue. What men should be doing specifically during worship services. And number two, how women should be acting during, during worship services. What men should be doing, how, what women should be doing during worship services. Paul is instructing proper gender roles. During worship. Now I'm going to the danger zone. This, this issue of gender roles is danger zone. It could potentially get, record this podcast, send it to my HR. It can potentially get me fired. Because it's a hot topic issue. It's not even a hot topic issue. What I just said goes against the narrative of society. In order to properly understand God, God's instruction to men and women and how to conduct themselves in worship, we first, before we tackle this issue, we need to understand something. In order for us to understand what Paul is trying to instruct us, we need to first embrace the godly narrative of how things are, rather than the worldly narrative of how things are. This issue can be offensive to some people because they're embracing the worldly narrative of what men and women are, rather than adopting God's narrative as revealed in Scripture of what men and women should be. Look, give me an example. So, best show on TV, Last of Us. Are you guys seeing it? Last of Us, oh, it's a good show, right? It's about, for those of you who don't know, it's about, it's, kind of a, it's not a zombie show per se. What is it, John? It's like fungi inspecting, like, you know, invading your brain to turn you into a, like a fungi, extension of a fungi reproduction, whatever. It's like zombie, it's a zombie movie. It's a zombie TV show, right? The last episode, episode three, last week's episode, did you guys see it? Was about in the zombie apocalypse, they took a break from the zombie apocalypse and they focused on, on a love story between two men. Episode three was about a love story between two men. And boy, I tell you, it was beautifully, tastefully done. There's no stereotype, there's no gay stereotypes there. It was a very touching, humanistic, representation, narrative of love between two men. I felt myself being moved when I was watching it. And when I was watching, I realized, oh, this is a narrative of the world. The world says that kind of lifestyle 
nothing wrong. In fact, this is beautiful. It's two human beings loving each other, it says. And because the story is so well told, it is very tempting to, in, to accept that narrative as true rather than the narrative that is depicted in, that's, that's depicted in Scripture. Look, this is what psychologists are saying. Human beings do not embrace truth because they thought about it, they reasoned with it, they experimented with it. That's not how people come to the conclusion of what is true. People are more basic than that. People come to the conclusion of what is true based on the stories that they hear. Jordan Peterson, the renowned psychologist, said that's true. People think something is true or false, not because of some independent analysis of, the, of, of, of something, but simply because the story, they think the story that they hear is true, and that story they feel is the truth. The Last of Us narrative is because it's so effective. We're tempted to adapt that narrative as truth rather than the narrative of God. What salvation is, listen to me carefully. Another way to think about salvation is you are changing narratives to what you think is true. Before meeting God, you thought certain versions of truth was the truth. Certain story representation of truth was the truth. That's what you really thought. What the world says, what Netflix says, what your parents says, all these stories that you hear, you thought that was true. But when you meet God personally, through his word, he changes the narrative of what you think is true. That's what the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr says. Salvation is all about shifting of the narrative of what you think is true. That's how you know before you were a Christian, you thought certain things were true. That's certainly true with the Apostle Paul. Now when you become a Christian, you can't believe you used to think such a way. You know what I mean? Back to the issue at hand. The narrative that the world tells you, and it's a very strong narrative, a narrative that you cannot escape, is that there are no difference between men and women. There's biological sex, but gender is fluid, they say. There's no difference between men and women. Men can get pregnant, they say. Truly. The scientists, doctors in America says men can get pregnant. There's no difference between men and women. But if you embrace this narrative, rather than the narrative of God, of course, what the Bible has to say about men and women roles will be offensive to you. What does the Bible say about men and women? 
Genesis chapter 1, 27. So God created man. Man here means humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the eyes of God, when he created humanity, he looked at humanity as humanity inhabited by men and, and women. He doesn't think about humanity as just dudes and the women as accessories. That's not how he thinks. In God's view, the, entire, the entirety of humanity is defined by men and women. Okay? That's what the Bible says. Therefore, men and women are equal in value of God because they're both, they're both part of humanity that God created in his own image. So the, the other religions that say women are second-class citizens, the women are property of the father. Do you know there's some countries in the Middle East, if a father is called mercy killing, if the daughter doesn't obey the father, the father has the right to murder his daughter without any legal repercussions. There are countries who believe that. But that is clearly against the Bible, because in the Bible, humanity is defined by men and women. It's not, humanity is not just a group of dudes. How depressing is that? I was in the army for like two years with dudes all around, it was the most depressing place ever. Humanity is made up of men and women, equal. But God specifically created men and women for different functions. Maybe this will get me fired. The biblical narrative is this. God has created men and women for different functions. The function is men are to lead and the women are to submit. Here we go. Men are to lead and women are to submit. And man, when I say this, I see women goes, what? Calm down. Let us examine this term, leading. You get angry when I said men should lead because you think the leaders are in a higher position than the submissive partner. You think leaders are in a higher plane, are better than the ones who submit. Understandably, that's a very worldly Understanding. But what is the biblical understanding of leading? What is the biblical understanding of leading? Look at Jesus Christ. How did he lead? How does he lead the church? He gave himself, he gave the glory of God up to come into the world as a servant. He lived the life of a servant. He died a servant. 
God gave him glory because he was a servant. Biblical leadership is about service. It is never about I'm better than you. It is the opposite. It is about service. It's about you better than me, and I'm serving you. That's what biblical service is about. That's what biblical leading is about. You see this over and over again in the life of Jesus Christ. Did he not say the last will be first in the kingdom of God? And the first will be last. What does he mean? He says, those dudes who have received recognition in this world will be last in the kingdom. But those who faithfully serve without any recognition will be first. Isn't Jesus, when he was teaching his 12 disciples about love, about leading, did he, not, did he not demonstrate his, his leadership by washing their feet? Jesus was not a master who demanded his disciples wash his feet. If Jesus was Korean, maybe he did that. But no. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. The living God washed, humiliated himself and washed the feet of his disciples. That's biblical leading. Biblical leading is service. Look, I'm the lead pastor of Embrace, am I not? Right? I think, am I wrong? I think I'm right, right? I think that's what I was hired for. Am I better than you because I'm a lead pastor? Am I somehow more important than you because I'm the lead pastor? No, I'm a servant, man. Being a lead pastor means I'm a servant. I get no social cachet for being a lead pastor of embrace. I'm a servant. When you need me, I will run to you. That's what biblical leadership is. Men, you are to lead that way. You are to serve God by serving your wife and your church that way. Not demanding things for yourself. That is not Jesus Christ. But sacrificing yourself for the sake of your wife, for the sake of the church. That's God's leadership role calling for you. Sisters, when I... When I give you that definition of leading, isn't that more easier to swallow? Women, this call is you are to submit to the person who is sacrificing all things for you. And submitting means, doesn't mean just keeping your opinions to yourself and not having any, you know what I mean, not giving up all your independence, it certainly doesn't mean that way. In fact, it's the opposite. The word helper, the word when God created Eve, God said to Adam, she will be your helper. The word helper means yezer in Hebrew, and it means a few things. Number one, it means, yezer means, she created, it means 
she created, it means a certain, there's a certain definition of, that carries around a sense of that she's your antagonist, that she's different from you. Women, God has created women to be exactly different from you. And why did, he, why did God create a woman to be different from, from, from men? So that she could complete him. He cannot be a good servant to God and the church and to the family without the insight and the help and the support and the wisdom of, of the wife. And yes, sisters, if it need be, if God is convicting your husband to lead you to a certain direction, then the call is to submit. Just like your biblical call, your call to me is, if I lead you in a certain way, I'm sorry to say this, but your duty is to submit to my direction, spiritually speaking. That's how it works. You may not like it because it's so foreign to you, but that's how it, but that's God's, the way God designed humanity and reality and men and women. Everyone understand? If you have any questions about men and women role, go talk to Pastor Ujin. He's, he's an expert on it. No, come talk to me. So it's in the light of this context, Paul is instructing the Ephesian church how to properly worship God. By the way, side note, small group leaders. These are very short verses, and I'm not really sure whether we're going to finish verse 10 together. Right? But the way you lead small group is I will send you my manuscript, which I poured my sweat, heart, and tears on it. Lead based on the manuscript. Not because what I say is, it's pretty good, but not, not, not because it's, it's a good discussion, because these things are reflected in the scripture. Okay? Go back to Ephesians. What had happened in the church of Ephesus? Number one, like I said before, men weren't leading. Men weren't leading. Especially men weren't leading in prayer. Verse 8, Paul says, My desire then is that, every, that in every place that men, the word men here, sometimes men in, in Hebrew means humanity, but men in this particular context means means male, genetic male. Paul says, my desire is that in every place that biological men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The best way. So let's unpack it. The word every place means any place that the church people gather together in worship, whether it is Sunday worship service, or whether it is in a prayer meeting setting, or whether it is in a small group setting, any place that the people of God got together, gather, that's a place of public worship. And in the public worship setting, men should be leading in prayer. Prayer for what? That's what last week's sermon was about. 
prayer about leading, leading prayer about the lost, about those who unbelie- those unbelievers, and God to God to save unbelievers. These are the type of prayer that Paul says the men should lead whenever the church gets together. What this verse is saying here is this. The way, the most basic way that men exercise their leadership in the church and indirectly in your families is through prayer. It doesn't mean women shouldn't pray during public worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, 11, chapter 11, verse 7, implies, yes, women should participate in the prayer during worship services, and that's true. But Paul is saying, God has created men to lead, and then the most fundamental way that you lead your church and to lead your family is to pray. That God will save the lost. Pray that God will purify his church. Pray for the unbelievers in the church. Pray for the unbelievers of your family members. Men should pray. Guys, your job, your duty as men. Women, obviously your duty as women is to call to pray. But I'm going, on, going hard on guys. Guys, your job, your calling, if you're a Christian, is to pray. That's the most fundamental way that you lead the church. Pray for the church. Pray for your family. We think it's men's fundamental duty to provide for my family. That's true. That's biblically true. Paul says if someone who doesn't, if someone who doesn't provide, for, provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, he says. And that's true. And women say, I make money too. God bless you for making money. But for a lot of guys, we think that our primary duty is to provide for my family. And a lot of the guys think my primary job is to just do whatever my wife wants me to do. Guys, your job is more than making money for your family. And your job is certainly more than doing whatever your wife wants you to do. Fundamentally, the most basic part of your duty as a man, pray for the church, pray for your families, especially pray for the unbelievers of the world, pray for the unbelievers, unbelievers of your family. And be, let's be honest, the unbelievers of your family will include your children. Your children were not, are not naturally born as believers. They're not. Pray for them. That's how you lead. Do not think making money and doing whatever your wife wants you to do, that's, God's, that's enough of a calling for God for you. You think, as long as I make money, as long as I do whatever my wife wants to say, that's it. I've done my duty as a man. Now let me watch football. No. The core of your calling as a man is to pray. Paul says, not only should you pray, you should pray with holy hands without quarreling or fighting. What, is it, what does it mean to pray with, holy, with, up, 
with lifting up holy hands. Contextually, a lot of the churches in the early church, when they prayed, this was a very popular way that people prayed. Right? Lifting up, I think, like, this is more of a Greco-German version, they say. But the OG version, I, I, I think, was like, this is the way that the early church prayed. But when Paul says lifting up holy hands, he doesn't mean physically lift your hands up when you pray. Lifting up holy hands means when you pray, make sure to live a holy life when you pray. Guys, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. A man whose life is holy, and a man, and such a man praying, God will use his prayers to do amazing things. I firmly believe that. In order for your prayers to be powerful and effective. You need to watch your life very carefully. Back to my original point. You need to live faithfully before God. In your daily activities, your daily habits, in your daily thinking, strive to live before the living God. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin. Because we live in the flesh, and our flesh remembers our sinful appetites, and we will, f- we will sin, and that's true. But confess your sins to the Lord. And strive to live holy life. And I promise you, gentlemen, a man, a prayer of a man whose life is holy, who strives to be holy before God, God can do Great things. This is different from an impotent man who doesn't pray and whose life is not holy. How is that person useful in the kingdom of God, in the life of the church, in the life of your family? How is, someone, how is a man who's supposed to serve and lead if he's not praying or if his life is not holy? What, how can God use such a man? Guys, watch your life. That's why Paul says, lifting holy hands without fighting, without quarreling. Because Paul says it's very tempting to fight and quarrel, especially within the church context. You know how easy it is for Christians to annoy each other? You know what I mean? You know how easy it is for us to annoy each other? Don't do that. Pray with holy life. Pray with pray for the unbelievers with a holy life. God's gonna use you. Making great time, by the way. Now to the ladies. Ladies part one and two weeks is ladies part two. Sorry, ladies. Paul just goes off with the goes on with the ladies. 
The thing that Paul talks about today is a softer version of what Paul wants to talk about. Verse 9, likewise, also that women should not adorn themselves in respect, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold, gold pearls or costly attire. It seems like Paul is giving you a dress code. Remember, Paul is talking about in the context of worship. What the main point of this verse, what Paul is getting at here is, ladies, and I don't think our ladies are guilty of this, but there are certain ladies in the in church of Ephesus, when they came to church, it was like a fashion show to display their sexual attractiveness or to display their wealth. I have no idea about women's psychology, right? But there are certain women back in the church and in today, I hear, I hear who think the church is their one way. And who think the church exists to flaunt their beauty or their wealth. This is especially true in the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city. And as all major city goes, sexual immorality was flagrant in in the entire city. And women were tempted to dress a certain way, wear their hair in a certain way. When Paul says braided hair... The fashion of the day, they say, was women to wear, fashionable, attractive women would wear expensive braided hair. I don't know what that is. Ladies, what are braided hair? I don't know. Maybe with jewelry or something. They would wear their hairs in a certain way to flaunt their beauty. Some were coming to church like that. Others were coming to church with their gold and pearls and expensive clothes. To, to make other people envious of them. Paul says, don't do that. Women should not do that during worship. Why? Because it's distracting. You're taking the distraction away. You're taking attention away from God, and you're putting the attention to you, which is a horrible thing. He doesn't mean women should not wear expensive clothes. Guys, if you have expensive clothes... Great. Good for you. I'm proud of you. I mean, is that something to be proud of? Yeah. Good for you. That you know you can afford these physicals. Yeah, you made it, right? But when you come to a church, be mindful that it doesn't get unduly attention to distract the service away from God. Why? Because guys, look let's look at Jesus' Satan's temptation Satan's temptation. Satan tempting Jesus. At the core of that temptation, when Satan tempted Jesus, at the core of his temptation was, he's trying to distract Jesus away from the mission. You're hungry. Don't live for the word of God. Turn these stone into bread. You don't have to go to the cross. Just bow down to me and I'll give you the entire world. Satan's temptation was always to distract Jesus from God, from the mission of God. And likewise, the way Satan tempts people in this world is to distract them away from God. 
And Paul is saying is, if you are a woman who wears these things to church where people should be worshiping God, and if you're drawing attention to yourself, then you're, then you're acting in a very evil, inappropriate way. Do you understand? All of your modestly dressed. I, love, I don't think we have prayer, right? Be careful in how you dress. Paul says, rather than letting your jewelry or your clothes Accentuate how beautiful you are. Paul says, adorn yourself with godliness that expresses itself with good works. Because when, when, when God looks at a woman, and the world, when the world looks at women, I'm really sorry to say, ladies, when the world looks at women, the Selfish pig men of the world, when they, they only mainly evaluate women based upon how they look, it's disgusting and tragic and sad, but that's true. But God doesn't look at women that way. The godly character of a woman that expresses itself through, godly, God, through faithful work. Paul says that is, that is honoring to God. Strive to live like that, lady. Oh, by the way, I know some of you will say, well, men can be distracting too, right? And that's true. Look, if I drove up here with a Porsche 911 and a Gucci tracksuit with a Gucci fur slippers on, yeah, I'll be distracting. So I shouldn't do that, right? Same concept. You shouldn't distract, divert attention away from God during worship service. But the main point of all this, be God-centered. Men, know what God has called you to do and do it. Ladies, know what God has called you to do and do it. So that God will be honored and praised through your life. That's today's sermon. In two weeks, I'm going to talk about when Paul says women should quiet at the church. That's a doozy. But today, that is what we take. Let's take a moment and pray. Let's pray.